I'm all ready for another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast. This is Steve Humble, and this is also the final episode for year 2023. I hope to address some important topics, if the Lord will help me, in 2024. But I will close out this year by focusing with you on God's new beginning. On the time when God himself became a human, He became part of his own creation in order to redeem the human beings whom he had created to represent him and also to restore and make new the larger creation that had been corrupted by our rebellion and sin. It's a busy time for most of us, so the emphasis this week will not be on the commentary, but on the readings themselves. I will tell you up front that the lectionary lists Mary's song, frequently called the Magnificent, first, and as an alternative, also suggests some verses from Psalm 89. I have chosen to read Psalm 89 in the usual place for the psalm, but after reading and commenting on the Gospel reading, which is Luke's account of the angel coming to Mary, I will read in uh, Mary's prophetic song in the closing section. And now, a reading from the prophets. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, 2020 edition. Now it came about when the king lived in his house. This is King David we're talking about. And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God remains within the tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you, or Yahweh is with you. But in that same night the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Should you build me a house for my dwelling? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. Rather, I have been moving about in a tent, that is, in a dwelling place. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies, this is what Yahweh of armies, or in the King James Version, the Lord of hosts says. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will establish a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will malicious people oppress them any more as previously. Even from the day that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you, that the Lord will make a house for you. 
when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and strokes of sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So it's tempting to go back and set the whole scene, but I'm not going to do that. David has now become the king of Israel. The Philistines have been defeated. The Hiram king of Tyre brought down cedars from Lebanon and built David a home appropriate for a king to live in. David had had the Ark of the Covenant moved into Jerusalem, and he began to think, here I've made this tent for the Ark, of course, the, tent had de- the ark had been in a, co- a tent out in the wilderness. And how can that be appropriate? Now, the Ark of the Covenant was covered with a covering, often called the mercy seat. And that was considered to be God's earthly throne. He had filled that old tabernacle with his glory, with the glory of his presence. And that's where he dwelt among his people on the earth under the Old Covenant. So David, thinking like a normal human being would think, how can I receive honor that's less than the king who's over me, the God of the universe, my creator? And so he called in the prophet of God and told him about his plan to build a temple in which they could place God's earthly throne. But Yahweh had a different vision. Now, reading prophecy like this is always difficult because there's levels of meaning, and some of the prophecy is about Israel as a nation. Some of the prophecy, obviously, is about David's physical, immediate physical descendants, Solomon and the ones who would follow him in the divided kingdom as kings of Judah. But There clearly is reference in this psalm. David's acknowledged in the New Testament to be a prophet. And there's a prophetic element to what Nathan is saying to David in this thing, in this prophecy. And it's pretty full. But the first thing I'll emphasize is that God told David he would build a house for him. Now the word there house doesn't just mean a building. It has more meaning in terms of a household or a family. You want to build a building for me. I want to build a family, a household for you. And then he says, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in a few verses later, he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Obviously, that's not Solomon. Uh, And this, as we read the New Testament, clearly is Jesus who's building a house for God, not a house made with hands, but
but a temple made of living stones. We are the living stones, whether Jews or Gentiles, all who believe in Jesus, built into the house in which God takes his residence among his new covenant people. Not only that, but we are the sons and daughters, those of us who have received Jesus as Lord of his kingdom. We belong to his kingdom, and it is established. It's, it's for sure. We have our ups and downs. But the destiny of the kingdoms for sure. Jesus has already raised, ro- risen from the dead and ascended to the throne of the universe. His enemies are being made his footstool, and the day will come when he will reign on the earth among his people again. This is all prophesying that. Now, I'll just point out very briefly that I got really excited and actually distracted some from preparing this as I realized afresh that in the passage where he says, I will raise up your descendant after you, the word chosen by those who translated the Old Testament, Jewish scholars about 200 BC, translated the Old Testament into Greek the version called the Septuagint, chose the word here, not just the typical word to raise up or lift up or to even to uh, set somebody on, establish them on a throne in that sense of raising up or exalting them. They chose a word that in the New Testament is used over and over by Jesus and also in the apostles to talk about raising someone from the dead. Jesus used it in terms of Lazarus. It's talked about us being raised from the dead at the end of time. And it talks about Jesus himself being raised from the dead. What an interesting thing if you're a first century or second century, third century Christian reading the Bible. You're probably reading from the Septuagint, the common language of that time. And you read in Samuel that God's going to raise from the dead, or at least that's the implication, a descendant of David and make him king forever. It's going to grab your attention really big in terms of the gospel that's preached by the, the, the apostles and the gospel that was brought by Jesus. Finally, he says, your household and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever again. No way that refers to Solomon or any one, any other of David's descendants. It only refers to Jesus. And in Jesus, in due time, the Messiah came. David's son, his ultimate descendant, was born. And we'll just leave it there for now. Our second reading is a similar passage. It's Psalm 89. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then verses 19 to 29. The psalm is interesting because there's, it's, it ends in a lament. God, why, aren't you, why are we in trouble? Why aren't you acting like you've acted? But it also praises God for things that he's done in the past and delivering his people from Egypt and delivering them from enemies. But it also focuses, especially in these early parts, on his God's relationship and promises to David, the same covenant promises that we just read about in Samuel. So, verse 1, I will sing of the graciousness of the Lord forever. 
To all generations I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. For I have said graciousness will be built up for the heavens in the, forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. I will establish your descendants forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. Of course that verse 4 is directly from 1 Samuel 7, 16. You can read that account, by the way, also in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles 17. Now down to verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor will the son of wickedness afflict him, but I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my favor will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I will also place his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will call to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I'll set up David's seed to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So in this psalm, we're not only we're not focused so much on David as on the covenant that God made with David and on the promise that a descendant of David would be exalted and reign. And this is another one where it's very interesting because verse 24 says, In my name his horn will be exalted. Well, horn in the Old Testament, when it's used symbolically, speaks of government. His government will be exalted. The word exalted there, although there are other choices that could have been used, again, it's significant that in the Septuagint, the word they chose is the same Greek word that Jesus used in three places in John when he talked about being lifted up. For instance, in John 3, uh, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. He was talking about being lifted up on the cross, but then Peter used that same word about being lifted up to talk about in Acts 2 to talk about God exalting or God lifting Jesus up to the throne where he said, sit and reign until your enemies are your footstool. Jesus is the one who in a way different than any of the rest of us could call God his father. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. Jesus is the firstborn, Hebrew says, of many sons. Jesus is the firstborn in a, the sense of begotten, not human birth, uh, the firstborn of creation. And um, that is his identity in relation to the father, the firstborn of God. But now he's the firstborn king. He's the descendant who will be God's representative to reign in history and time. 
And Psalm 89 is very clear about that. So it's exciting to me to see, to try to look back and, and see how these prophecies would be read in a time in the early church when they didn't have the New Testament or they only had parts of it. And they're reading along and they see these things that seem unmistakably to point to Jesus. He's the only one that could fill these things out. And they should give us uh, reason to rejoice in the greatness of God and the plan of God and how careful God was bringing forth his purposes and his plan. Now the reading from the epistles this week is Romans 16, 25 to 27. These are the last few verses of Romans. And he says, Now to him, that is God, who is able to establish you according to my gospel, that's Paul's gospel, the gospel which he preached, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has been disclosed and through the scriptures of the prophets in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God has been known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Now there's a lot of words in there but actually this passage has much more meaning if you go back to the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1 begins with some uh, a passage that this is parallel to or this is the groundwork for the concluding verses. It says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called in his apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. This is the mystery that was concealed, that's revealed in the gospel. It concerns his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was designated as the son of God in power, that is the son of God reigning, the son of God having taken up his authority, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. Now I want to just say something that has stood out to me through the years, both at the beginning and at the end of Romans, in which, which most Protestants in particular emphasize as the book of justification by faith, and certainly it is about that. But it's not just faith in the sense of simply believing or some kind of mental agreement or affirmation. It's a faith that puts one's trust in God and it's a faith that, as James says, leads to obedience. The two things go together. And so both for the Jews and for the Gentiles, because this gospel's for the nations, Paul emphasizes, it's for the whole world. Jew and Gentile. And this preaching of this mystery of Christ not only provides for us salvation, as we call it, by faith, being right with God by faith, but it leads to obedience that is produced by that faith in Jesus when we make him our king. And 
as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, let's not just think about the fact that this baby was going to grow up and he was going to die for our sins so we can go to heaven when we die. He died so he could get us back on track and that our trust in him would lead us to the kind of obedience that God had planned for human beings from the beginning and the very kind of obedience with Jesus, which Jesus himself demonstrated when he was on earth and he only did. For it is written of us like it is of, of Jesus. He fulfilled it perfectly. Lo, it's written in the book, I've come to do your will. We're not here to do our own thing. We're here to do the will of God. And this birth of Jesus is the beginning of us being restored so we can fulfill the purpose that we're here for. Oh, thank God for the gospel that gives us forgiveness of sins. But thanks, thank God also for the gospel that, that tells us that through Jesus Christ, we can be put back on track and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Reading from the Gospel is from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, the angel said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your, conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What an amazing event. Sometimes we hear these stories so often that, that they don't, but put yourself in the place of this little girl from an obscure village in the northern part of what we now call the Holy Land, uh, up around the Sea of Galilee, a little village out in the hills, and an angel shows up. And <laughs> it's interesting to me that she's more perplexed by his statement when he calls her favored one and says the Lord's with her than she is by his appearance. I don't know what an angel looks like, uh, but... Uh, but she's trying to figure out, why is this person greeting me this way? And then the angel begins to tell her what's going to happen about Jesus. And we see in here again the fulfillment of the words about David and his son who would have the throne 
and who would reign forever and be over the house of God's people forever. And the, all the same themes are in this passage uh, in the statement of the angel as he explains to Mary what's going to happen to her. And then he ends it with pointing to the fact that her uh, cousin, Elizabeth apparently, uh, was going to have a son and even though she'd been infertile, uh, now she's carrying a son and she's in her sixth month. Not only, I think, is that a hint for Mary to go visit Elizabeth, but it's to help her. If God, it would remind her that God gave Sarah a child when she was too old to bear, although it came from a man through Abraham, but he was pretty old to be fathering too. And Elizabeth had been barren, and she and her husband were old, and but God had given them conception. If a God could do that for barren women, for infertile women, could he not for a virgin overshadow her with the Holy Spirit and give her a child who is the son of David but is also the son of God? Well, all that's pretty unbe unbelievable, we might say. But the fact is, Mary took him at his word. And she says, Behold the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. There is the response that all of us are supposed to have. I just quoted a few minutes ago from the psalm, Lo, in the book it's written to me, I've come to do your will. This is said about Jesus. He made it clear he came to do the Father's will. And Mary is offering herself, here I am, I'm here to do your will. That's the posture God is looking for in our lives as we celebrate Christmas. So much of our Christmas celebration focuses on me and mine and ours and what our gifts are and what the rich foods are and family. But the bottom line of all this is God sent his son to restore us to the place where we, like Mary, could say, be it done unto me according to your will. Or like Jesus would say later, not my will, yours be done. And so I'll continue. I'm going to go ahead and read what happened next, and that'll lead us right into the second psalm or song, if you want to call that, Mary's Exaltation. After the angel left, at this time Mary set out and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and now it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. This is almost as amazing as what we read about the angel coming to Mary. According to Elizabeth, John, yet unborn, a six-month-old fetus, as we will say today, recognized the Lord who Mary was carrying early in her pregnancy, neither one of them yet being born. And somehow 
Elizabeth interpreted that and understood that to mean the mother of my Lord. She's recognizing that Mary's carrying God, that Mary's carrying the one that she serves, her Lord. And so she honors Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is really beyond remarkable. It's amazing when you stop and think through what is being said. And I want to pick up on that last line. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her. Now that was for Mary, but blessed are we if we embrace and believe and fulfill the purpose that God has for us. And Mary's response to Elizabeth is wonderful. Luke 1, 46 to 55. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is to generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He's done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down rulers from their throne, and He's exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. And He has given help to His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, just as He spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever. Oh, I could just stop there. But let me just make a couple of comments in closing. Not only is Mary praising God because of what he's done in her and what he's allowing her to participate in, here's a young girl, girls of that period of time, we're told we're highly educated. We don't even know if she could read. And yet the things that she says in verse 51 on are things that are themes in the Old Testament scriptures of the promises of God. They're not things primarily that we see actually fulfilled in their fullness. We see hints of them or we see signs of them. But they're the signs of the ultimate kingdom. They're the signs of what Jesus will have accomplished in visible form in the, when he comes in his second coming. So she's prophesying, but she's pro her prophecy is all rooted in things from the Old Testament that we just read over and miss. But God has been faithful to his word. And if those things were sure to Mary at a time when Jesus was early in his conception form, before he'd even been born, they ought to be things that we rejoice in now. We can look at the world around us and it's dark, and we can look at any kind of persecution, or it's even hard to call the opposition we face in this country persecution at this point, although it may come. But we need to see who Jesus is. And we need to be able to say in faith, He has done mighty deeds. He's scattered the proud. He's exalted the humble. The meek inherit the earth. 
He's brought down the rulers of this age. Revelation says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And those who have had plenty, those who have had their way in this world, uh, won't have their way in the way world to come. And so you hear echoes even in these words of things that Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Mary was grounded in the promises of God in the scriptures, and so must we be. Well, that's enough. If you put up with this this long, I know you're ready for your Christmas Eve celebrations, for your Christmas Day celebrations. May God bless you. May he fill your lives, your homes, your families, your churches with his presence and with his glory. And may we, his people, enter 2024 in the same kind of spirit of hope because as sure as it was to Mary when she was carrying Jesus in her womb, it's a sure thing even made sure now by the death and the resurrection of Jesus that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. God will be glorified in his Son, in his people, and in his creation. God bless you. Merry Christmas.